we're talking about humanity this week, and uh, these are not sermons, so um, I'll be more teachy than preachy, though I am a preacher, so I'm sure it'll get, get that way sometimes. Um, but hopefully uh, you'll be able to follow along. If you have a, a Bible, it'd be great to have it. We'll be mainly in Genesis 1 today. And we're thinking about anthropology, so anthropology, the study of humanity, but more specifically, we're thinking about theological anthropology. And that means that we want to think about what human beings are based on what God says human beings are. So there's a difference in anthropology and theological anthropology, right? Uh, So anthropology, you just go out and look at humans empirically and, and think about them, or philosophically even, from the ground up. But we're thinking about it from the top down, from the heavenly downward, from the perspective of the divine. So let me read uh, just the first couple of passages here that are they're in the handout, and <clears throat> they'll be good starting points for us. Um, by the way, this is from the New American Standard. It probably will read a little differently than you're used to, uh, but this is the, the new, just a top tip, the New American Standard Bible is the best translation for, uh, if you're looking for something that approximates the Hebrew and Greek without much, much difference, much uh, interpretation. So it's the best thing out there. Not the 1995 update, the original New American Standard. So don't get the 1995 edition. Get the, the original. And this is what we have here. Uh, Hebrews 11.3, by faith we understand that the world has been created by the word of God so that what is seen has not been made out of things that are visible. And then Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was formless and desolate emptiness. And darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters, and then God said. All right, uh, let's think together first about the structure of creation. And what we're going to do is we're going to build over the four talks. And so we'll, we'll begin here and start to develop an image and a map for humanity and how it fits in with the broader, our broader theology, especially of creation. So, um, one of, there was a moment this past year where I was teaching on creation and I decided to make a list just from Genesis 1 of everything that you can find that God made in Genesis 1. It's a lot bigger list than you would think. Uh, and one of the ways to do that is to also think what did God make not only in terms of what's listed in Genesis 1 but by good and necessary consequence. So if you made the sun, moon, and the stars, there has to be gravity, right? Things like that. Uh, it's an immense list. It's, it's a huge list. But when you read verse 1, the first thing that you see is that God created heaven and earth. And what Genesis 1 does is it gives you a list of uh, things that got created in couplets. This is the first one, heavens and earth. So it's summarizing the entirety of creation under these two realms, the heavenly and the earthly. Uh, there's a duality, and that duality is going to continue into the rest of the chapter. We're going to see more of that in just a moment. Uh, Let me just say a few things about that by way of introduction. One, um, the first thing to notice about creation before you get to humanity is that uh, the heavenly and the earthly are both creaturely domains. Okay, The heavenly is a creaturely domain of existence. Uh, The earthly is a creaturely domain of existence. God created both creaturely domains in the beginning by his speech. Now, that means, and maybe you've thought about this before, maybe you haven't. That means that God in heaven, when when the Bible tells us that God is in heaven, 
We're not talking about God's eternal home. Heaven is not God's eternal home. Heaven is a creaturely space that God has chosen to condescend into. And so the very first thing we see that God made is heaven, the heavens, which is a summary statement of the entire invisible realm that we read about in Hebrews 11, verse 3. So there's an entire invisible world, a realm that's just behind the curtain called the heavens. And uh, heaven is full of creatures. And God enters into heaven, that space, just like he condescends down into our space, the earthly. And so at the very beginning, there's a duality of creaturely existence. And that duality has a relationship. And that relationship is really tight-knit and close. That heaven and earth are meant to be thought of as one thing together, creatureliness. Uh, There's a duality. Now, if we're going to put some words on that, the word that we want to use that theologians typically use is they talk about the organic unity of heaven and earth in the beginning. And this is uh, an idea that, that we see all throughout the Bible, that when you, take, um, when you take the way God made the world from the very beginning, he made it to be an organic unity. And the reason that theologians use that word organic uh, I talked to one of you does physics, any biologists or other types of scientists in the room? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, uh, something that's organic, of course, is alive. Right. It's teeming with life, as we say. But another way that we use the word organism is that it's something that has life, but also has diversity about it. So it's both one and many at the same time. So we use the word universe. There's a physics word universe. uh, Right. Because it's one thing. Right. Universe, but composed of an immense amount of parts. So or, or, organicity, if you will, if we can say something like that, I think I made that up, is uh, something that's alive and one, yet composed of many, many, many parts. That's creation. Uh, it's an organic union, a harmony between two realms, heaven and earth. Heaven is the invisible realm to the human eye behind the curtain, where God currently chooses to condescend into and live, and earth is the embodied realm, right? And this existed from the very beginning as an organic whole. All right, that's the first thing. The second thing, by way of introduction to say, is um, um, that, sorry, that was the second thing. The first thing was that heaven and earth are creaturely domains. The second thing, that they exist in an organic harmony. Um, The third thing is that that gives shape to the rest of the structure of the creation story, so you want to keep that duality in mind and this idea of organism and duality, unity and diversity, as you work through the rest of the creation story. That's actually exactly how God laid it out through Moses and, and the editors that eventually got a hold of, of this text and delivered it to us by the Spirit. All right, so, so let me talk about that for a few minutes. You'll see you've got a big box uh, on your handout. We'll come to that in just a second. You can lay out the structure of creation in that box if you like. Uh, But to get there, we've got to think about the genre of the text that we're looking at here, Genesis chapter 1. So genre, uh, you know, how how you read this piece of literature, that's really the question of genre, right? We know that we read newspapers and we read Harry Potter, uh, very different from each other. And we read newspapers and Harry Potter, both very differently from the way we read the Bible, right? And so genre really matters in how you interpret and how you read something. And uh, many of you, most of you, all of you probably know that Genesis 1 is highly, highly debated on, on what genre is this. Is it 
history. Uh, so, some say it's, it's pure history. Others come and say it's mythology, right? Uh, mythology in, in the sense like Greek mythology. Others come and say it is mere poetry, right? Uh, uh, so we, we won't get into that right now, but the, but the answer is, is Genesis 1 history or poetry? The answer is yes. That's the only right answer. Is it history? Is it poetry? The answer is yes. Uh, Genesis 1 is a poetic expression. Is poetry. It's song, actually. It's a sung account of the real reality, the history of God's creation work. It's both at the same time. Um, And so uh, it's very important to see it that way because you see from the very beginning how how much literary work was put into putting it together. And you need to see that if you want to see what it's trying to convey, what it's trying to teach. Uh, So we've already seen this couplet, heaven and earth, and we're going to keep seeing things like that throughout. Let Let me give you a little bit of this. After this first couplet, heaven and earth, uh, it is in eight very clear sections, Genesis chapter one, uh, really into chapter two, verse three. Chapter two, verse one to three is the conclusion of the Genesis one story. So remember that your Bible, your Bibles don't actually have chapters and verses or anything like that. That's, a, that's a, something we put in there in the Middle Ages, right? And so it, it goes from Genesis one, one to two, three. That's the first section of the Bible, and it's in eight very clear sections. Okay, so Genesis 1, 1 to 2 is section 1. And then there are seven movements and a conclusion. All right, now let me give you uh, a few little facts about it and see if you can start to put some things together. Um, here is a quote, as the commentators say, a partial listing of the phenomenal features found in Genesis chapter 1, 1 to 2, 3. The phenomenal feature, you know, the features that you can find, that you can see on the text. First of all, the number of Hebrew words in the first sentence of Genesis 1 is seven. The number of Hebrew words. The number of letters in the first sentence of Genesis 1 is 28. So the number of words is seven. The number of letters in Hebrew, Hebrew letters, not English, don't count the English, is 28. All right, so... You physicists and, and math people, work this out for us. What are we seeing here? Uh, do you notice it already? Um, the first three words in the beginning, which is the superscript or title of the book of Genesis, the original title, is uh, 14 letters. 14 letters. Uh, verse 2. So the first, the first sentence is seven words, 28 letters, with the superscript, which is the title, being 14 letters. Verse two, verse two is 14 words. So verse one is seven words. Verse two is 14 words. Okay. Um, Chapter two, verse one to three, which is the conclusion of the first uh, story is 35 words. 35 words. Okay. And then the total word count. Now, look, I'm going to skip about 50 of these facts, by the way. Um, You can go look up the rest. Uh, There's tons more, tons more, um, but we don't have time. Uh, The total word count in the creation story is 469 words. Uh, This one's harder to work out, but it's it's 67 sets of seven. 67 sets of seven. Um, God says it is good. How many times? Somebody shout it out. You can do it. Seven, Seven, yeah. (laughs) Now, earth is mentioned. Somebody shout it out. No. Uh, but 
you, you're absolutely on the right track. 21, actually. 21, 7 times 3. Um, the most common noun in the creation story is God, God's name. And it appears 35 times. Okay, so now that, that is not the whole list. The list is much, 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 much more expensive than that. Uh, this is a text that was given to us by divine inspiration uh, with a very intense and high literary output of style. History and poetry, and it's communicating 7777 about a thousand times, literally. Uh, it's trying to speak that to you, and uh, that's because it's trying to convey, which what an ancient person knew, and that's that the concept of seven and the number seven to the Israelite Hebrew mind shouts harmony, shalom, order, perfection, goodness, delight, joy. And more than anything, the number seven, we'll see in a minute, is meant to convey God's presence. Um, and so it, it's speaking that to us over and over again in just the way it's structured. Now, we haven't got to our box yet. We're still, look, we're just warming up. We haven't got to the box yet. Uh, the box is going to be the best part. Um, now, let me say a couple of things about it. We have here a story of the divine ordering of the creaturely realm. And remember that the headline is heaven and earth. Uh, but the word, the most important word, which appears most often, 35 times, the noun, most important noun, is God. So it says, it says more than anything else in this text, more than any other word besides the preposition, God, 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 God. Over and over again, it's shouting, shouting that. And so it's God, God made this duality that's in harmony, the heavenly and the earthly realm, that are meant to be one together. That's the, the big message from the very beginning. And so let me give you uh, the Hebrew word for Earth, Uh, sometimes it's translated earth, sometimes it's translated ground, which is very important. It's going to be translated ground in chapter two. So if you're reading from an ESV, for example, it's going to say ground a lot for this. But it's the same word. God created the heavens and the ground. It could be read or the earth. And you see that again in in chapter two. And it's the word Eretz. So E-R-E-T-S, Eretz. Uh, And I I just give that to you because it is a word on repeat. You You can... Trace that word throughout the entirety of the Old Testament and actually understand most of the Old Testament's meaning from the fact of that word. So God created heaven first, but then he creates the Eretz. And one of the things that the Old Testament conveys, and I can't prove this right now for time's sake, but is that the Eretz is meant to reflect an image, the heavenly. And so in this harmony that God created in the beginning, uh, it's that the Eretz, the earth, the earth level of existence, of creatureliness, is meant to be an image of the heavenly level of existence. So that's what a temple is. We'll come and see this tomorrow. But that's what the temple is. The, the temple is meant to be a mimic of the heavenly temple. So God brings temples down to earth in order to image forth the heavenly realm. So the earthly realm is meant from the very beginning to show forth what God is showing forth in the heavenly realm to the creatures there. All right, so keep that in the back of your mind, that God is there in the heavenly realm, seated on his throne, Father, Son, and Spirit, and he's there with the heavenly host. These are all creatures, cherubs and seraphs and angels. And then in the earthly realm, there is meant to be a similarity, a mimicry, a mimesis, to put it for you philosophy people, uh, in the earthly that looks like the heavenly. Okay, so to do that, you need something. 
Uh, you, need, you need a similarity. And we're going to see that that's going to happen here in just a moment. Uh, all right. So uh, now second couplet, um, not only uh, heaven and earth, but there's one more couplet here in the very beginning in the introductory verses, verse two. And that's uh, God says here, it says here that the earth, the Eretz was formless and a desolate emptiness or uh, formless and void in like the ESV. Now, one more lap. No, this is not the last. I'm lying. Let me give you another. It's, it's, I think it's important in a seminar like this. We can, we can talk a little more detail about things uh, because it's not Sunday. Um, to, the, the, the Hebrew words there, they're fun to say. Tohu wabohu. All right. So some of you will have heard that. That's what, you know, when people go to seminary or maybe they study divinity at St. Andrews or something like that, uh, they go around saying things like that. Tohu wabohu. Right. And um, everybody hates them. For it. <laughs> but uh, you can do it, you know, in this kind of a context, but you just don't do it. Don't do it normally. Don't. Um, but it says that and it, it's really important because heaven and earth is a couplet and then tohu wabohu is a couplet. And it is saying here that in the very beginning um, on earth, unlike heaven, we have formlessness. So there is stuff, but it doesn't have shape. And there is second word, a void, meaning it also is not filled with anything. So at the very beginning, God creates the air as the ground, and it is formless and unfilled. It has nothing in it. It has matter. Uh, it has light. It has darkness, but it doesn't have shape at all. And so the rest of the story is just about God after having created stuff, material, Eretz, which is physical embodied matter, giving shape to it all and organizing it and putting it all in the right places. And the one that does that is the spirit. So this all happens just in the introduction. The spirit comes down and hovers over the face of the waters. They're formless. It's unfilled. And it's the spirit that's going to do the organizing, the putting everything in all the right places and then filling it up. Right. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. Now, a little aside, that's the role of the Holy Spirit in the whole of the Bible. So the father creates, we say. The son mediates that creation, brings it forth, and the spirit perfects or orders that creation, actually does the moving pieces. In the New Testament, when you become a Christian, do you know what happens? The father speaks your justification the Son mediates justification. The Spirit perfects and brings you to glorification. The Spirit's the one that actually gives it to you and makes it happen, right? So there's a book out there on the table. I saw Redemption Accomplished and Applied. I think that's out there, wasn't it? Yeah, so that's what that book's all about. The Spirit's been doing the same work in Genesis as in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and beyond. Uh, that's why the Son is fitting to mediate redemption because the Son mediated creation. The Spirit perfects you as a believer because the Spirit perfects creation. So creation and new creation are, new creation is a model that follows after creation. We see that uh, from the very beginning. So here, that's what the Spirit's doing. The Spirit, by the way, um, is mentioned here in a metaphorical terms. So it, it talks about the Spirit here hovering over the face of the waters. Um, what, what metaphor might this be? It's, um, it's a bird, right? It's the metaphor of a bird. And we see that show up in Deuteronomy 32, 11. This is the 
only other place where we have the same verb used in the exact same form, and it's about a bird. So when the Bible says things like God uh, is like an eagle for us, a mother eagle that covers us in her wings, it's using the same kind of idea here, a metaphor of the spirit. All right, now for the box. Uh, That's the introduction. The rest of it, we can do this in two minutes. Uh, The rest of it uh, falls all into place. The spirit now is going to perfect it all. And here's how. The spirit perfects the Eretz, earth, according to the two problems. Uh, Not sin, but imperfections. Not yet made perfect. That's what's happened. Tohu wabohu. Formlessness, right? And voidness or unfilledness have to be fixed. All right, so day one, two, and three, we get what? Form. Day four, five, and six, we get filling. So tohu wabohu become the principal ideas by which the Spirit acts, day one to three, day four to six. So just very quickly, day one, uh, God creates light and darkness, and that's the form. And then in day four, uh, what do we get? Sun, moon, and stars, right? So that's the filling. That's the actual content that's going to provide the light. Day two, the waters. Day five, the sea creatures that live in, and swim in the waters, right? Day three, the seas, the dry lands, the plants. Day six, animals and humans. So days one, two, three, the spirit forms the Eretz. In days four, five, six, the spirit fills the Eretz. Uh, so that's the structure of creation. Now, we could, uh, you could have, honestly, you could have a semester on, on it um, because there is so much content. Uh, there's so much there. It, it's more complex and intricate than we can imagine. And uh, we're still discovering things about the text. These, uh, uh, these short, the short page, a page of the Bible. Um, it's unbelievable. It's, uh, it's because it's inspired by God. It's actually God's speech. That's why it can do things like this. Um, now, let's let that roll over then secondly into our second point, which is the binding of sacred order. And we'll start to bring some of this together and make it matter to us a little bit more. Um, the binding of sacred order, uh, which is twofold. Uh, by, by binding, I mean the glue, if you will, bringing it all together, uh, how creation comes to actual harmony. So the work that it was meant for from the very beginning, this is, this is what we have. Uh, twofold. First, uh, let me uh, develop it for you a little bit just in a few minutes. Um, one of the first things to notice is that one of the order, one of the aspects of the liter- literary order of Genesis 1 is the let there be's. Right, so over and over again, seven times, in fact, God says, let there be. And then we hear what? And there was, right? So uh, we've got a bunch of university people, students here. We've talked to the biologists and the physicists. We've talked to the philosophers already. Uh, Some of you are maybe grammarians or literary people. Um, We've talked to you as well already. But you'll know the jussive, that this is let there be. It's a jussive tense. Um, it, it has the idea of conveying a, uh, a pouring, uh, like a cup being poured out is what the jussive kind of conveys. It's, it's, uh, it's as if God is decided to allow the bounty 
of his blessedness and beauty to spill, but on purpose, into the Eretz, into the, into the creaturely domain. That's what we get in the sense of the let there be's. There's, Jonathan Edwards talked about it as a, as a cup running over. That creation is, is nothing but God deciding to allow his cup to run over into the creaturely domain. Uh, of course, it all comes from him, right? Um, now, put that together with one other sevenfold refrain. The let there be's, God's cup running over, his blessedness and beauty with, and it was good, seven times. Uh, you know, I remember I mentioned at the beginning that if you were to sit down and make a list of all the things you find in Genesis chapter one, um, it's a huge list. If you then ask what must exist in the creation story by good and necessary consequence, like gravity, things like that, uh, the list is immense, immense. Try it sometime. But one of the things that you would have to mention is goodness. So this moral, this moral perfection exists. You know, so one of the things you, you learn about in Genesis 1 is it's not just that there is a, an order, a physical order and a harmony about the Eretz and its relation to heaven, but that just as much as if you tried to stand on the top of this building and jump off and flap your arms in order to prevent any type of injury, you know, we, we would all tell you that is not going to work. That is a violation of sacred order. And that sacred order includes physical law. Uh, just as much as that exists, from the beginning, there is also spiritual law, moral law that exists. And that law is just as true and just as real as uh, any other physical law that we've discovered across human history and uh, the history of the universe. When God says, and it is good, we see that, that his goodness is pouring forth into a moral order that exists within the creaturely dimension. It is good meaning it has moral quality, spiritual quality about it. And uh, the main thing to say about this is the binding or the glue of sacred order, what keeps everything together, what makes it harmonious, one, whole, the heaven and earth, all of it bound together, is nothing but the pouring over of the simple reality of God's love. That's what it is. The glue of the order of the creaturely existence is love, and it's God's love. And love is not mentioned in Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3. But that's exactly what it is. And we see it in the very fact of God letting it be, letting it, letting it out, letting the creation come forth and then saying, now it's good because I'm good. I stamp it with my goodness, with my, with my presence. We see it in the spirit hovering over the face of the waters. Uh, it's, that's the binding of sacred order. Now that's the first. The second and final one is this. And we'll start to bring things to a close for this first talk. Um, creation is the overflow then of God's love. And uh, uh, before I get to the second, let me just mention, I wanted to quote Oliver O'Donovan. He's the great uh, theologian at, at, at University of Edinburgh. He was Regis Professor of Divinity at Oxford for many, many years. But he's, he talks about it like this. He says that when you look at the New Testament, um, one of the ways that you know that Love is the binding glue of all creation order. And that, the simple fact, let's be simple. God loves what he made. God loves us. Um, Well, where do you find it? You find it in the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the affirmation that God loves the Eretz. 
God loves the Arabs. God loves the earthly domain. He loves the embodiment. He loves human embodiment. And that, we know that because when Jesus rises from the dead, God pronounces, God pronounces that embodiment, human embodiment, the Eretz, the physical, biology and physics, all of it, will exist forever. Right? Jesus Christ has a human body and Jesus Christ will always have a human body. The Son of God will always be embodied with a human body forever. And that means that the creation that God loved to spill over in the beginning is the very creation that God continues to love all the way through the fact of the resurrection and into everlasting life. Now, the second aspect, and here's where we get to being human, and we'll carry on being human the rest of our time this week. Uh, The second aspect of the glue that binds sacred order is God's love meted out or given out or overflowing in the very fact of humanity, all right? So I mentioned earlier in the interview, there's nothing here that you're, you're, there's probably some things that I've already said that maybe you've not seen before, but this is very simple and basic truth. And that's that humanity is the crescendo and climax of creation, day six. Uh, That will be a very important thing to camp out on tomorrow when we think about gender and uh, Eve's relationship to Adam in particular. And how that movement works. But let me say this. That um, a human being. What is a human? Here's the first definition. A human being is the meeting place between heaven and earth. God from the very beginning has had a very clear purpose in in creation. To pour forth his love. And to create a creaturely domain that is one. One holy place. Heaven and earth united together. Okay, stick with me for just a moment and we'll be finished. Uh, In the New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 1, we've we've got uh, this great sentence that lasts forever that Paul wrote. And um, it's a very long sentence in Greek. But he gives you in this sentence uh, the point of all existence. And he says the point of all existence is that Jesus Christ came to sum up all things or unite. And then he says to unite all things. And then he, there's a comma. And then he says heaven and earth. So Paul tells us that Jesus came to unite the heavenly and the earthly. And actually, that was the point in the creation order, was that God, through Adam and Eve, was going to bring together the heavenly and the earthly, the two creaturely domains. Uh, That's why he put them in a temple on top of a holy mountain and condescended to be with them, right? The heavenly and the earthly, where God lives in that creaturely realm, coming down to our creaturely realm, and they being one forever in perfect joy. Um, That was the point here at the beginning, and it's exactly what Jesus came to do. But Paul tells us that really clearly. Human beings are the meeting place between heaven and earth. Right? There is one creature, one creature in the Eretz that has eternal or immortal, let's say, spirituality. Right? You are a creature of the heavenly domain. You have a spirit. Your spirit is going to live forever. Every single person you encounter is going to live forever. 
And yet you also have what? A body. You are a creature of the Eretz and the heavens. You're a spirit and you're an embodied spirit. You are the meeting place. That's why Paul can say, do you not know that you are a temple? A temple of the Holy Spirit? What's a temple? A temple is a place where the divine and the Eretz, the the creaturely on earth, meet. Right? And so human beings are temples. Uh, We are embodied spirits made for both realms. And that means that as pinnacle creatures of creation, human beings uh, exist for God to say, I want heaven and earth to be together. One thing. Now, I don't know where I am in the outline, um, but we're, we're truly coming to a finish. Let, let's do this. Revelation 22, what happens there? Human beings do not go up, right? In, in the new creation, human beings do not go up into the heavenly realm. What happens? The heavenly realm comes down. Jesus goes as the human and brings the heavenly realm down to earth where heaven and earth will be united forever. It's always been the point. That was the point of the covenant God makes with Adam and Eve. Uh, So you're a covenant creature. You're in relationship with God. You're the meeting place between heaven and earth. And you're meant uh, to signal forth or image forth the reality to all the other Eretz creatures that God is bringing heaven and earth together. And you actually do that because you're an embodied spirit. You have to. You have to. Now, we'll talk tomorrow about what the image of God means in a little bit more detail, but that's one of the ways to think about it. All right, so let me, let me close by talking a bit about this third heading, naked and unashamed. Uh, it's, a, it's another way of just saying all that I've already said. This is a quote, by the way, from the Bible. Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, Adam and Eve, it says, we're naked and unashamed. Now, it's talking about marriage to some degree in that verse, but I, I just want to say also, and we'll come back to this uh, next time, um, or I think the third talk. Uh, naked and unashamed in the creation story does not primarily refer to the simple idea of not having clothes on. Uh, instead, what it's talking about is a context in which a person, a human, can be completely known and thoroughly loved, right? To be naked and unashamed means that you're available to be completely known, unhidden, unguard, unguarded, not standing behind a rock when God comes. Known and exactly who you are and loved. So another way I like to say it is known to the bottom and yet love to the sky. Now, that is exactly what we do not have in the current order of existence in the world of sin. To be completely known in love, that is the, the thing we are most afraid of. We are afraid that if we were to be completely known, we would not be lovable. And this is the final and, and greatest point is that you were made, what is a human being? A human being is God's covenant creature. That's the theological way to say it. The, the way to say it that matters to us more is God made you to be in a relationship where he knows you to the bottom and loves you to the sky. Uh, to be near you, to be with you. The union of heaven and earth, it's the same thing. God with you. Emmanuel has always been the point. God with us. 
Uh, that's what a human being is. This meeting place between heaven and earth where God comes uh, to know us all the way to the bottom. All right. I think I probably need to stop. Um, I have lots more in my notes, but as John knows very well, we never get through all the notes. Uh, and we're not going through this week either. Um, so I'll stop there. And uh, I, I, what I'll really do is just pick back up on that tomorrow, I think. And we'll talk about the more precise meaning of the image and then the concept of gender. Okay? Cool. Shall I pray? I'll pray while you guys come up. Lord, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for the beauty of the Bible and the immensity of its depth and meaning. And we know that that is because, God, you wrote it. So, wow, um, thank you. And we also thank you for uh, making us. And we thank you that you made us to be this convergence point between heaven and earth uh, to signal forth the very reality of our God, you, in heaven. Now, so, um, lastly, more than that, we thank you, God, that you know us to the bottom and love us to the sky, and that that is knowing every single reality of our sin. Uh, So we thank you that knowing us and loving us did not stop in Genesis 2, but kept going despite us. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's, Lord, stand, I think, and worship together.